China, I mean, we're talking about a global powerhouse here. They're the second largest economy in the world and they actually contribute to all of our lives in some way, shape or form. I mean, for instance, just have a little gander around your flat, house or wherever you're listening to this and there'll be things made and produced from that region of the world. However, despite its global influence, the Chinese government is facing mounting international criticism over its treatment of the mostly Muslim Uyghur population in the northwestern region of Xinjiang. Human rights organizations believe that China has detained more than 1 million Uyghurs over the past few years. We're hearing crazy stories of incarceration, concentration camps, forced labor, sexual abuse, killings, and the term genocide being attributed to the actions of the Chinese government. So I want to find out the truth. Is China's treatment of its Uyghur population completely abhorrent? Or is much of this all just westernized sensationalization in the media? So welcome to the So Far So Good podcast. And this week, we're speaking about what is really going on in China and the treatment of the Uyghur people. So before we kick things off and speak to our guest this week, let me give those of you that don't know just a little bit of context into what we're actually discussing. Now there's about 1.4 billion people in China, with the main ethnic group being the Han Chinese, which account for about 91% of the population. Now I'm not going to try and embarrass myself with the mathematics behind that, but that's a hell of a lot of one demographic. There are 55 other smaller ethnic minorities in China, but it's clear from the statistics that the Han Chinese are a dominant force in this area of the world. Now, the Uyghurs are a Muslim minority living in northwestern China in the region of Xinjiang. There are about 12 million of them. They speak their own language, have their own customs and see themselves culturally and ethnically closer to the Central Asian nations. And over the years, large numbers of Han Chinese began moving to Xinjiang. And over time, economic disparities and tensions have grown between the Uyghur and Han populations. This has led to protests and other disturbances between both groups. There have been violent outbreaks where, in 2009 for instance, 200 mostly Han individuals were killed in a riot. And there have been other instances of unrest and domestic terrorism, with suicide bombings and knife attacks by the Uyghurs, all stemming from their discontent with the growing influence of the Han Chinese in Xinjiang. And now this has all led to the Chinese government cracking down on the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, citing a need for greater security and constant policing in Uyghur-dominated areas. The most controversial of these crackdowns, and what we'll touch upon today, are the introduction of these camps, these re-education centres, prison-like institutions where Uyghurs are put to re-educate themselves under the eyes of the Chinese government. And this has led to a growing international concern. In April of this year, the House of Commons declared for the first time that genocide is taking place against Uyghurs in northwest China. And this was a huge step. Whilst this doesn't compel the UK to take any action, it is a sign of growing discontent towards the Chinese government in Parliament. So that's literally the bare bones of the situation. But as always on the So Far So Good podcast, we're not interested in hovering over the surface. We want to dig a lot deeper into this and uncover as much truth and information as we can. My first of two guests this week is John Parker, an international correspondent at The Economist. John, tell me a little bit about this area of the world. 
why is Xinjiang so significant to the Chinese government? And why are the Uyghurs a group of interest to them? So Xinjiang is the furthest northwest part of China, right? If you imagine a map of China, it's like the top left-hand corner. And it's an incredibly long way away from Beijing. The main town uh, for the Uyghurs, uh, I'll come back to who they are in a minute, but is slightly nearer to Baghdad than it is to Beijing. So it's an extraordinarily sort of far-flung distant place. Uh, the Chinese government worries about that, partly because, you know, it's a massively long way away from them. It's also the biggest oil producing part of China. And it's a part of the world where China actually fought a couple of wars with the Soviet Union over borders. You can tell from the term Soviet Union, we're talking about like the 1960s here, but the, the, the Chinese have pretty long memories and they, they haven't forgotten that that's a, a border which has caused them problems in the past. Now, the other important thing you should know is that the people who live there, the Uyghurs, are Muslims. And the Chinese worry about Muslim extremism. There, there are connections between the Uyghurs and um, Muslim extremism in the diaspora, i.e. outside China. Right, so in Iraq uh, and in Syria, there have been uh, Uyghur fighters, people who've left China ages ago. Um, and there have been a few terrorist attacks committed by Uyghurs, we're not sure who they are, but committed by Uyghurs in China itself. Notoriously, um, there, there, were, there were two sort of infamous ones to the Chinese. One was an attack on a big railway station uh, in a town called Kunming, uh, and about 30 people were killed. So that was one sort of horrible event. Um, and the other very dramatic event was a like two or three Uyghurs uh, drove a car bomb into Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square is like the center of Beijing. It's like Trafalgar Square, or, you know, it's like the, the, the historic political heart of China. So that was sort of deeply embarrassing. Now the Chinese sort of put all this together to say, we are threatened in some way by um, Muslim extremism in Xinjiang in a part of the world which is economically important. You know, as I said, it's a big oil producer, various other, and it's a huge, huge place. It's like the size of Western Europe. And uh, we, you know, we, we're threatened by them, so we have to crack down. That's sort of, that, that's, that's it, seen through the eyes of the, the Communist Party. You referenced there the tensions between the two groups, um, especially in Xinjiang. And of course, there have been instances of violence between the two groups. But China's a massive place. So what do the ordinary Han Chinese make of the Uyghurs? Han Chinese, like ordinary Chinese people, don't know anything about the Uyghurs. As I said, like, they're phenomenally far away. They don't speak the same language. They don't speak... Mandarin Chinese, right, okay. right? There are a lot of Han Chinese 
uh, in the province, in Xinjiang itself. They've nearly all gone there to make tons of money. It's been a sort of economically successful place. Those guys, like some of them, you know, they're pretty recent arrivals. They don't really care that much. Uh, they just didn't want to get the money and go. So they're not that fast. There's one group of Han Chinese who do worry about it. They're the people who've been living there for like 50 or 100 years. There aren't that many of them, but they do worry, I think. For the most part, I'd say the popular view of the Chinese is we're bringing the benefits of Chinese civilization to these backward people. And so I support what the government's doing. So John gives us a pretty good understanding of why this region is so important to the Chinese government. And I guess the reason, if you want to call it, as to why the Uyghur people are being persecuted. I mentioned earlier the presence of these re-education centres and detention camps, which have been cropping up in the region ever since 2015. And the emergence of these institutions has caused a real uproar. So I want to know a bit more about what these camps are really like and what goes on in them. So I put this to Megha Rajagopalan an award-winning international correspondent for BuzzFeed News. Megha, tell me about what goes on in these camps from your research. What do we know to be happening to the people that live there? So my team has documented the existence of little over 300 detention camps at this point. So in Xinjiang, I guess I'm primarily going to be talking about mass internment camps and prisons. Mm -hmm. So in terms of prisons, first of all, based on official data that was analyzed by the New York Times, there's been a, a huge spike in incarceration. So aside from that, you have the camps, which um, is essentially like the, the Chinese government does not officially consider these camps to be a form of punishment for a crime. So what that means is the people that are being sent to these camps, they don't really get any information about what they're even being accused of, like let alone seeing the inside of a courthouse. We're talking about a million plus people here. So what happens in these camps, so like the first thing that happens when you get detained is like usually police will come to your home or your, your place of work. A lot of people have described this happening like kind of in the middle of the night. People that were arrested during the day, some of them have talked about having a sack put over their heads so they can't see where they're going. Typically they'll get taken to a clinic to have some kind of like health inspections take place and then they'll be taken to these camps. Okay, and what goes on in these camps then specifically? What are the ins and outs of day-to-day -day life once these people have been detained and taken to these places? So for the most part, um, sort of everyday activity is sort of coercive rather than murderous. So the, uh, the Uyghurs who are in these camps are sort of forced to undergo re-education, hence the term of re-education camps. And that means learning about sort of communist propaganda, learning all about what Xi Jinping is trying to do, what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do. There are stories that people aren't allowed to eat until they've praised Xi Jinping. So it's this aspect of it is kind of coercive. And we know this essentially because pe people are sometimes get out of these camps. I mean, they're not in there forever. They're eyewitness reports of what happened in the camps. So what's happening inside the camps? I've interviewed few dozen detainee, ex-detainees at this point, and their stories are actually remarkably similar. By the government's description, these facilities are for education. Things like 
you know, Chinese policy and like um, communist party dogma. Um, They say like anti-terrorist education, education in Chinese language, like all of these things. But in practice, what happens is that people are held in these like very, very overcrowded cells. There's security cameras inside the rooms, very, very strict restrictions on mobility, meaning prisoners have to walk across these like painted lines if they want to, if like even when they are leaving the rooms with permission, um, prisoners pretty much take all of their meals in these rooms and people described you know having to sit on these plastic stools um beside their beds for like 10 hours a day reading things like xi jinping thought um and other government propaganda so in practice it seems like it can be very abusive i should say in addition to that there have been lots of reports about women saying that they've experienced sexual violence in these facilities um you know people describing routine interrogations sleep deprivation and other forms of, of torture and abuse so some of the things described here are, you know, um, crimes against humanity, are they not? You know, abuse and sexual violence, truly horrendous crimes and exploitation and abuse of human rights. Forgive me for probing, but how much do we know about these instances in particular? There are also reports uh, that people are being murdered in the camps. And especially just recently, there have been a lot of reports of mass rape. Rape is used as a sort of form of, of, well, kind of war. These are patchier. I think that's inevitable. Uh, that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they're wrong, but it's just, you know, there, there aren't as many reports of this kind. We know a, a, a few cases where people have definitely been killed in the camps or have died in the camps because the Chinese have admitted it, but there are only a few there. So we think that um, there are killings. We're almost certain there are very substantial numbers of rapes. Like I said, you know, we're talking about some extremely brutal instances of violence, physical and sexual violence. And of course, like you say, John, you know, the reports are a lot patchier and understandably so. I guess my question to you then is, um, how similar are these camps to the Nazi concentration camps during the Second World War? The Nazis aren't the only group of people in history to have these kind of camps, and I don't mean to be facetious in any way in trying to compare such a monstrous aspect of human history to what is going on now. But this term concentration camps is banded about very frequently in Western media when the camps in Xinjiang are spoken about. Is this an accurate description or should we be a lot more careful when attaching that stigma to the situation that we see, that we are seeing over in Xinjiang? I should say that the one thing we don't think is happening, they're not like extermination camps like the Nazis. They they are coercive rather than Germans call them eradication camps. They're not Mm. like that. I'm an American, and I think for most Americans, when we think about concentration camps, we pretty much think about the Nazis. And if you think about the original meaning of the word concentration camp, it's really about uh, people who belong to a certain ethnic or religious group being forced to be interned in these kind of facilities, right? So when you think about the Nazis, immediately what people think about are death camps. So I want to be clear that that's we're not seeing like state-sanctioned killing here, although there are lots of instances of people having died in these facilities, sort of anecdotally, although um, it's impossible to get a f- official record 
numbers that would let us know of the scale of that happening. There aren't, for instance, like gas chambers, you know, that we know of, of course, in the sense that the Nazis would have them. It does not seem like the government wants to exterminate, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. What it seems like to me, at least at the current moment, is that the government's drive is to erase these people's cultural and religious identities, you know, confine their political expression to the point that it's essentially non-existent. I think the the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think the repression of Uyghurs as a group and other Muslim minorities goes beyond the camps. The camps is just sort of one facet of this. I think it's like, I think that the comparison with the Nazis is like, it's quite an easy one to make because that's like a historical everybody is very, very familiar with. But I think it's important to acknowledge sort of both the similarities and differences with, with that policy. So, of course, the media is heavily censored and controlled in China. But how much do regular Han Chinese people know about what goes on in these camps specifically? Because surely they'd share the same sort of outrage that us over in the West are experiencing when we're hearing about these stories. The media is closely controlled in China and there's no sort of free press um, you know, investigating conditions in the camps. And, and, and indeed, nobody's really been allowed into the camps uh, to re- report freely, which is why, you know, when I, when I was speaking earlier, I was referring to um, the accounts that we have from people who, you know, who, who eyewitness accounts of people who were, were there, used to be there. Okay. We haven't got, you know, f- people freely able to wander around and talk to people in, inside the camps. That, that doesn't happen. So from the Chinese point of view, as I said, they think that they're being threatened by the Uyghurs in some way, uh, a, a border war, uh, and there's, there's you know, terrorist activities, which they've sort of hyped up massively. Their claim is that, the, that, that, that they're dealing with a terrorist threat, and that therefore they're justified in doing what they're doing. Yeah, but I mean, it's all, it's all still pretty murky and quite a horrendous environment still, no? Well, I think they are murky and horrendous. I mean, they're just not like murder camps, at okay. least as far as we know. Okay. Um, uh, that, I mean, that's the difference. They, they, I mean, most of the reports do suggest that the conditions of life in these camps are terrible. Um, you know, there are huge numbers of people crammed together. Um, medicine and other things are not available. The conditions of life are bad. Um, and, and remember, m- most of the people who've been sent to these camps, they haven't, they haven't been sent there as a result of a decision by a court of law. You know, they, they've not been found guilty of a crime. They've just been asserted that they sh- it's been asserted by Communist Party officials, usually. Uh, they've just been told to go there. So they're, they're not, they haven't been found guilty of anything. Uh, so th- their, their conditions of life are, are, very, are pretty grim. So the camps are one element of this suppression of the Uyghur culture and John and Mega clearly outline exactly why these camps have caused such an international outcry. There are some truly concerning instances of violence, abuse of human rights and maltreatment of the Uyghur people. Despite this being a key component of why this has become a serious topic of discussion, the camps are just one element of oppression against the Uyghurs in China. 
there have been reports that Xinjiang has turned very much into a police state, a totalitarian land controlled by a political police force that supervises the citizens' activities. So I wanted to know a bit more about that and whether this region of the world is as dystopian as it is reported in the media. So Meiko, what is it actually like out there? Has it actually turned into a bit of a police state? Yeah, I mean, like police state is obviously a subjective term, but I think it's fair to call it that. The the surveillance measures there are extremely restrictive. You know, I've reported in Myanmar before uh, the transition to democracy. I've been to North Korea. Like, uh, I guess the time that I spent in Xinjiang is like, it, it almost gave me the same level of anxiety because of the number of surveillance cameras, the security checkpoints that exist outside of every town, the uh, intense physical police presence and the the fact that you can see you know Uyghurs there being treated differently mm. being sent to different lines like when they go to checkpoint being stopped on the street and having their their identity papers checked or their cell phones checked um so those things all sort of make it feel like a police state for sure mm. when i went there i was surprised at how pervasive the sort of what what you might call sort of old fashioned person to person uh, surveillance and suppression was. So, for example, if you walk around the shops, in every shop, there's somebody with like a police helmet, a flat jacket and a large stick there in the shop. They're shop assistants, right? But also sort of co-opted police officers. Uh, in restaurants and, you know, in sort of markets and so on, all the knives are chained up, right? You go into a kitchen and there are these sort of long wires attached to uh, attached to um, the, the knives. And the thing that struck me most, I think, is that you can't talk to the Uyghurs because you're aware of the fact that if you do, you, you're, however innocent the conversation, you could land them in one of these camps. Right. Being seen to be speaking to a foreign journalist might well be enough to put to put them away. Just by chance, I got on a bus and it was stopped at a, at a checkpoint. And everyone, they were all Uyghurs except me, we all got off the bus. They had to show their their ID cards. Uh, the, the women had to take off their headscarves. Everyone had to give their uh, mobile phones mm-hmm. and they would put the phones in a kind of cradle and download all the information from them. This happened to everybody. They were photographed. You know, it was like mass detailed surveillance. And this happens two or three times a day to all the Uyghurs. This all makes pretty grim reading for the Chinese government, Um, you know, a government so influential in global politics. What is their response to these claims? Because I assume the president, Xi Jinping, or any other governmental official hasn't openly come out and admitted to the certain atrocities and persecution of the Uyghur people that is going on under their governmental rule. So what has been their response to these claims? Um, So the government has adopted a few positions over time. So at first, they basically said these places don't exist. After the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which was like the first kind of international authority to say anything about this like after they came out and said that they were concerned about this and kind of a routine review of um of chinese policy the chinese government then said okay there are 
places like this, but they're actually for education. They're for professional development and skills, skills development, and they're not concentration camps. I believe in December of 2019, there was a senior official from Xinjiang who said, okay, actually everyone's graduated from these facilities. So essentially implying they're all closed. So our research has found that not only are they not all closed, the government is continuing to build, which you can see in satellite imagery. To be clear, like, the, yeah, the government has never really acknowledged, like, what happens in these facilities or that they're even, they even exist for the purpose of detention. But that is, like, I think that seems to clearly be the case. Yeah, because I think what is really baffling to me is why there isn't more coverage and a bigger driving force behind this situation. Because, yes, of course, there are YouTube videos and articles, um, documentaries even, that cover what is going on. Even mainstream media outlets have reported on it, but it hasn't generated perhaps the gravitas of what you'd expect with a story like this. I understand, you know, that we live in a world where so much goes on all the time, and unfortunately we can't help everybody or alleviate every situation. And, you know, many countries have their own issues to deal with first and foremost. But with something like this where China are so ingrained in world politics, why haven't there why haven't the institutions that can really make a difference spoken up about this situation more? I understand some organisations have mentioned it, but from the outside looking in, it's all been very much in passing. Why aren't the UN and why aren't governments and human rights organisations coming out and condemning this and making a big noise about this situation? I know that awareness is growing, but this has been going on for five or six years. Some people listening to this right now, it might be the first time that they've been made aware of the situation in Xinjiang. And that's of no fault of their own because we aren't hearing about it as much. Why have the UK, for instance, only just in April of this year come out saying that they condemn what's going on out there? Why is it taking this long for us to take a clear position on this? Like, what are we afraid of? Well, the short answer why people haven't done more through the UN is because we're dealing with the second largest economy in the world. And China has the power of veto in the UN Security Council over any intervention that you can think of. If the UN Security Council proposed to, you know, condemn the Chinese, the Chinese would simply veto it. If they proposed to send a fact-finding mission there, the Chinese would veto that. Uh, so that's the, the shorthand. A few countries and um, uh, sort of, you know, officials uh, and, and civil society groups have very clearly condemned the Chinese. There was have been large numbers of uh, sort of journalistic uh, exposés of which, you know, my, I played a tiny role. Um, so it, there have been a, there has been quite a lot of attention, but I think it's true that it doesn't really cut through much to the general public. I mean, so I began by saying, you know, Xinjiang's a very long way away from Beijing. Of course, it's a very long way away from everywhere. The Chinese that we ha we don't have pictures from inside the camps because the Chinese don't let people in. People are being told about what's happening, but they're not being shown really what's happening. John, do you reckon if people could actually see exactly what was going on in these camps and in this region, there'd be a lot more anger and shock about this whole situation? 
I don't really know. I mean, I think a lot of it is really to do with, you know, this is being done by, as I said, the the second most powerful, you know, government in the world. <laughs> and there's not much one can do. You know, you you could you can claim that what they you can say that what they're doing is genocide, but the, the Chinese deny it, and and not, and that you haven't really achieved anything. It's, right. And we're not going to um, we're not going to be able to exert that much pressure on the Chinese by you know imposing sanctions. Say we have imposed some sanctions. But, you know, they're not really going to make a great deal of difference. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, like the U.S. has spoken up about it probably, you know, much later than it was actually that it had actually started. But like, I believe the first statements the U.S. made were as early as 2018. I guess I've covered human rights for a long time. And one thing I've learned is that when you're talking about diplomatic action and even statements that pertain to human rights in a different country, it's sort of intricately tied to all of the other aspects of diplomatic relations between these two countries. So the Trump administration, for instance, in kind of early in the administration, went through a process where they were trying to work closely with China uh, for purposes of reaching a trade agreement. Um, And then after that, things really started to deteriorate. Uh, Trade war started. Uh, The Trump administration started being a lot more vocal about lots of things that they found fault with with China and Xinjiang sort of became a part of that. So, I mean, having said that, the Trump administration did something that no other governments did, which is that they enacted a series of actual sanctions that affect high-level officials that have responsive that they view as having responsibility for the camps program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've uh, they've put trade curbs on uh, the import of tomatoes from the region and cottons from cotton products from the region, um, which are those two industries have been implicated in forced labor accusations. So there were like real concrete measures being taken last year. And under Biden, um, the U.S. Customs authorities have continued some of those measures. There's a kind of different question as to like what's going on in the EU and the U.K. and why hasn't there been kind of more concrete language until pretty recently. And I mean, there like it's hard to kind of answer that question without veering into speculation. But I do think that it matters that China is not Like China's, we're not talking about, you know, kind of a small country that happens to be authoritarian, Mm. but isn't that geopolitically significant. Like China's a UN Security Council member. Um, It's a kind of major infrastructure um, investor in many countries that participate in its Belt and Road Initiative. Um, It is an economic powerhouse, of course, and integral to the global economy and um, global trade. Um, I think all of these things have increased China's diplomatic clout. And it makes it harder, for short, to criticize something that China views as a domestic issue and not something that should be internationalized. Now, this all seems quite bleak, if I'm being completely frank. I understand that taking on a global superpower like China is a daunting prospect for most nations and governing bodies and whatever. So is there any hope at all out there that there'll be an end to this? Like, surely... I find it hard to imagine that any it will be anything other than it will continue the same, right? I mean, in other, in, in there have been other genocides. There have been other, act, you know, acts of exactly, terror yeah. apartheid. Mm. 
But there, so in, in Rwanda, there was, there was a genocide, but that was brought to an end by an invading army uh, and the government was overthrown. That's obviously not going to happen to the party. I mean, essentially, the Chinese have no reason to change their behavior. And no one has enough power to force them to change their behavior. I, I should say, Xi Jinping, was, uh, he used the term, show absolutely no mercy. Hmm. Right? And if, if the government, if that's the attitude of the government, I can't see it's going to change itself. And I don't think anybody from the outside has the power to make them change. I mean, I am disgusted beyond belief at a, you know, personal, at a personal level. I, I think that the Chinese are guilty of a form of genocide. I mean, I think they want to eradicate all the characteristics that make the Uyghurs Uyghurs, that mm. make them distinctively different people. Genocide means, you know, the eradication of a whole group of people. It doesn't just, you know, extermination camps. Extermination camps are means to an end. That mm. They were the Nazis, means to an end. Nazis wanted to destroy the Jews. The, the, the Chinese, I think, do want to destroy the Uyghurs as a separate group of people and sort of remake them as good Chinese citizens. And so they're banning their religion, you know, you can't, if you're a man, you can't grow a beard. Uh, if you're a woman, you can't wear a headscarf. You can't name your children Mustafa or Fatima. All sort of visible aspects of your religion are banned. Uh, your language, Uyghur language, is, is not taught in schools. It's not used in the classroom or in official business. I mean, mm -hmm. it's used, of course, in the street, but, but it's not sort of official. Mm. So, I mean, I think what the Chinese are doing is just, it's the most terrible abuse of human rights. But I accept that, you know, I mean, I've been there, I've sort of seen it with my own eyes, and I, I haven't really been able to sort of energise all that many people, you know. Well, there you have it. I'm very much aware that there's a lot more to the situation than meets the eye and the complexities of what is happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang go beyond what you've heard in this podcast, perhaps. It goes without saying, but I did also want to just reiterate that we just commented on a situation in the world and believe that this is a failure of government more than anything to do with the people out there. I conclude this week's episode feeling a little bit helpless, if I'm being honest. Usually I might have some sort of conclusion on how to move forward, but I'm sort of now understanding the real gravitas of the problem. Like John and Mega alluded to, we are talking about some of the most powerful people in the world here. And like I mentioned, it's impossible to help everyone, but I think it's also important to understand what is going on in that region of the world and, and get more people to become aware of this situation. Hopefully the mounting international pressure for change ultimately prevails. Before we wrap up this week's episode, I just wanted to say a massive thanks to John and Mecca for taking part in this week's episode. Apart from being absolute legends in their own right, their work in covering this situation has been amazing and it was a privilege to speak to them. Big shout out to The Economist and BuzzFeed News as well. But also, of course, a massive thanks to you guys for listening. Let me know your thoughts and if you're new here, make sure you get at me on Instagram at SoFarSoGoodPod.com. 
And until next time, people, bye-bye.